Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the possibilities of the power of the calendar. If you could say, like, you know, by the time we get five years from now, I will have moved my back office stuff to the cloud, we'll be more managed service-based and that kind of stuff. But this year, we're taking on those five systems because they are just really eating our lunch, and we're going to declare a sunset for them by this day. Policy and governance can only do so much to drive IT excellence. I think that more effective, however, is when there are centers of excellence or innovation shops within organizations. And the double danger for the Coast Guard's IT operation. It's almost as if we've got a, a, an additional set of constraints that we've got to manage with IT, but we also have to you know, be able to deliver on the technology that all of the Coasties need. It's Tuesday, May 24th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Agriculture Department of the National Archives are the two newest recipients of Technology Modernization Fund awards. The Archives gets $9.1 million to digitize records processing. USDA will get $4.4 million for its Zero Trust Cyber Architecture Program. The Defense Department still has work to do to hit its own cyber standards under the cybersecurity maturity model it requires of industry. The Government Accountability Office finds DOD's only met 78% of the 110 controls CMMC requires. The GAO did note in its work the Pentagon isn't legally required to meet all of the CMMC criteria. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The 13th year of Fed Talks launches June 15th. High-level leaders in government, industry, and academia will offer lightning talks, keynotes, and fireside chats. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. A robotics process automation experiment at Customs and Border Protection began with questions about how to close out contracts and obligate money in a pandemic environment. That experiment earned CBP an Innovation Champion Award from ACT-IAC. Dave Wenergren's chief executive officer of ACT-IAC. He's former chief information officer of the Navy and former assistant deputy chief management officer. At the Emerging Technology and Innovation Conference ACT-IAC hosted this week, he tells me the need for experimentation in government is bigger than ever. The vast majority of the federal technology budget still gets spent on the big giant systems. And we have to make progress on those. But if you're trying to be a champion for innovative new approaches, you can win the hearts and minds of the organization or your customers by being able to try something, even if it's a little smaller scale, but that it's meaningful. I think oftentimes what happens in the innovation world is it's easy to make a website prettier, but that's not nearly as exciting as something that involves a customer experience aspect. Like how do you actually make it easier for a taxpayer to file a tax return? How do you actually make it easier for a sailor to find their next assignment? Things like that. And so try something that has a huge impact about customer experience and human-centered design that is like maybe building on a technology solution that another organization already has and give it a whirl. Mm -hmm. Sidebar, based on what you're talking about there, because you're right, a lot of the money goes to these big legacy systems that we talk about all the time, like they're this you know, yeah. ugly thing that's kept yeah. under the bed. Is there a way to track whether we're on the right trajectory at transforming some of that legacy? Because the number I keep hearing is we spend 85% of our IT budget on legacy, and it's held that number uh, that number's held for so long, and I wonder if that's just because nobody's checked or if we're still 
directing money to the same places even after all these years of of trying to trying to change things i fear that the statistics are probably still true yeah and and i know that i started telling that story when i was still in government right. so you know like i'll say over a decade ago that's what the, I mean. the statistics were true and i think that they still are now you know not all legacy is bad, mm -hmm. right? I mean, underneath right. of Travelocity and Expedia is old legacy mainframe United Airlines systems and stuff. I mean, so everything doesn't have to get replaced. But so I think that the answer has to be if agencies are not only reporting on how much progress they've made on the cloud, but they're also reporting on an IT modernization plan. One of the things I would love to see in like a future version of the Fatara scorecard is, do you have an IT modernization plan? What does that modernization plan include? What's your plan to sunset or replace or improve legacy systems and then how are you doing? And, and as we've talked about before, that moves you from a culture of like oversight about gotcha and is about measuring outcomes, mm -hmm. right? And then you could sort of see the progress is being made. Because I don't know that the, the dollar count will be a lagging indicator because the operations and maintenance money being traded in for dev mod kind of money, that takes time. But you could see that like over the course of the rest of this year, I took five legacy things and did something with them. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to applaud that effort. So a semantics question, well, a couple of things, actually. One's a semantics question, and one is a transformation-related question. The semantics question is, is it important to have a strategy versus a plan? That's one. And the other is, at what point, you said not all legacy systems are bad, and that's true, but at some point, I think you reach diminishing returns where it doesn't make any sense to put the grill from a Bentley on the front of a Chevrolet, and I wonder what the metric is to determine what that point of diminishing returns yeah. is. I, I think that there's sort of a, uh, you know, a common sense test. I mean, I think you could do the quick checklist that said, you know, is your hardware still supported by the manufacturer? Is the software that you're running on still supported by the, the manufacturer, right? Is, is, are the processes antiquated? Does it still involve too much like paper-based stuff combined with the system? I mean, I think there's like a short checklist of like three or four things that tell you this one should be the initial target of opportunity for my next step about getting rid of some legacy thing. Yeah. So I do think that there's a way to sort of like assess that th this one isn't hurting anybody and it's not really in the way. Whereas this other one is really forced me to live in an ancient process that was like ridiculous when it was paper and all we did when we automated it 50 years ago was to put computers behind an awful process. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea of plan versus strategy. When I think of plan, that's tactical. Yeah. That's not strategic necessarily. And I wonder if strategy says we have eight legacy systems. Three of them are like you just described. They're not in our way. They're isolated. They're not connected to something else necessarily that they're a security risk. Five of them are priorities, and we need to pay attention to those. And to your point about the Fatara scorecard, in a strategic environment, then you don't get dinged if you're not touching these other three. Right. Is that kind of what I, you're, where you're headed? I think that's fair, and I, and I like the way you described it. And I think that a successful IT modernization plan you know, has a strategic element. But this is where we intend to get ourselves over the next few years. Mm -hmm. But it is only valuable if it has, to your point, a little bit more of a tactical aspect about, and as a consequence of that over the next 12 months. Because I think like too often what ends up happening is it takes a really long time. It takes a really long time in the federal government to take a big thing and do something with it. And so if you could say like, you know, by the time we get five years from now, I will have moved my 
back office stuff to the cloud. We'll be more managed service-based and that kind of stuff. But this year, we're taking on those five systems because they are just really eating our lunch. And we're going to declare a sunset for them by this date. Mm -hmm. Because often what I see, even like when in the Department of Defense, they were doing the big enterprise resource planning systems, the sunsetting of things just never happened. They'd have those, we called them pizza charts with all the systems that were going to go away. But then you come back five years later after they spent all the money in the new system and they were still sort of hanging on to the security blankets of the old stuff. So it's like, the you know, burn the ships. It's yeah. time to move forward. I'm really struck by how pre-COVID it seems here. You know, people are being careful. They're being safe. They're taking precautions where they feel it's necessary. But by and large, the kind of the camaraderie that comes out of an event like this is back. Um, one of the things I learned about you, I was thinking about this on the way down here, uh, very early on in our friendship was that you're a big reader. And I'm just wondering what you what you have read over the last, I don't know, however long, that you think is really meaningful to what people are doing in this space. Book, uh, magazine, article, anything like that. Yeah, I would offer I would offer up two. John Cotter has a new book out called Change. And, uh, and I had the honor of doing an interview with him uh, at one of our conferences a year ago and then uh, later on on a radio interview. And, and, and it's just fabulous. He's done all this research around like the human brain and, and what we've learned about change. So, you know, he's a change icon. And so he wrote Leading Change a couple decades ago. He wrote the Urgency book. But this sort of brings together all the latest brain science about why it is that we respond the way we do in change in a sort of fight or flight kind of mentality and how do you take that sort of thrive, the survive mechanism that's been built into your brain since prehistoric days, which is still very active, and not let that overheat while you let your thrive mechanism actually let you think about being more innovative. Because when you're stuck with a problem to solve, you oftentimes are like reactive and not thinking innovatively, which is the whole point of this conference. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is Barry Johnson, who wrote the polarity management books. He's got a couple new books out called And, and they sort of press home this very point that the life is often not a single problem to solve, and when we view it that way, we, we end up making things worse rather than better. But instead, it's a polarity of two things that have to be managed. And I think the technology market is just full of these polarities, where if we focus only on security, we don't share knowledge well. If we focus only on information sharing, then bad things happen. And, and we could do it differently if we view it as a polarity of something to manage. So those are a couple that I've enjoyed reading in the last year. If your goal of you and your team was to bring back the spirit and the location of management of change, but with a different mindset so that it's a different presentation than what people think they get at the executive leadership conference you hit a home run my friend oh thank you it's a great team i'm delighted to be on the ride with them you can read more in today's show notes at the daily scoop i'm francis rose the host of the daily scoop podcast coming on tuesday's show hacking the department of homeland security dhs is reviewing results from its bug bounty program the department's chief information security officer ken bible is on tomorrow's daily scoop podcast at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows the new awards from the technology modernization fund are the latest examples of projects that will require collaboration between mission owners and technology personnel Kelly Morrison is Senior Vice President of Human Touch, LLC. She's former Director of IT Planning and Portfolio Management at the Interior Department and former Performance Analyst at the Office of Management and Budget. At the Emerging Technology and Innovation Conference, she tells me there are two things that would help agencies bridge the gap between tech people and mission owners. One is use cases. I guess related to use cases, what are the pain points that people are having? What are the, the things that they're challenged with? that they're trying to solve, and then talking about how you know, 
just like a collaboration tool 20 years ago if we're leveraging AI and NLP and, and different innovative technologies today, it can solve challenges that just like a um, yeah, a basic collaboration tool 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. The story about that explanation, the terminology and so on that impacted me the most in the years I've been doing this, this was I want to say three or four years ago when I was at the television show, mm-hmm. uh, John Hill from the Treasury Department came on and was talking about how they introduced RPA, Robotic Process Automation, in his shop. And I said, how did you explain the technology to people? Mm-hmm. How did you tell them what was going to happen? He said, well, I didn't tell them what was going to happen. I asked them, what are the jobs that you do, the tasks that you do that are repetitive, where you do the same thing over and over again yep. that you hate? And then if you didn't have to do that, what would you be able to do that you've never been able to yeah, get to? Yeah, instead. Yeah. Yep. He didn't say it, but I inferred it, that he avoided that whole conversation about the bots are coming to take my job because each person yep. had just listed this whole thing of things, this whole list of things that they'd be able to do if they didn't have to do these repetitive tasks over and over again. And then the next thing they did was they showed the employees how to make the bots. So they became really engaged in the end product and the results that the end products delivered. And I I wonder why we don't see more. Maybe there are a lot more. I'm not implying that he's the only person that's ever done it that way. But it just that story stuck with me all these years later as just a terrific use case to to the term that you just used about addressing pain points and figuring out how to use that to leverage the this technology that it doesn't matter to the person that's doing that task on a spreadsheet or whatever every day how the guts of the bot work right that's right that's they don't right. care but if they're learning about the bots while they also don't have to do that repetitive task then yes they're empowered they're they're part of the change management process they're invested and they're they're not going to resist the effort so Mm -hmm. i love that example that you shared yeah how do we go about propagating more of that across this community kelly is it as simple as you identify people like that and you just have them go out maybe this happens at your old agency level, at OMB level, to identify those stories and have those people go out and kind of evangelize, I guess. Is that the best way to do it? Or, or is, are, there, are there policy and governance steps that the government could take, OMB could take, mm-hmm. some, uh, within an agency, whatever, to maybe encourage, I'm using air quotes, encourage that kind of propagation? Um, yes, I think that there definitely <clears throat> there's definitely ways to propagate it within policy and guidance. I think that more effective, however, is when there are centers of excellence or innovation shops within organizations that understand the mission of the organization, understand the processes, the the data challenges, and can work in an agile fashion to gain some quick wins, solve some problems, and 
that enables customers of that innovation shop to to want to do more. So any my experience at at OMB at the policy level, you we can put in a ton of things to drive the behavior that we're trying to drive. And so often because agencies are so busy and focused on so many different things, the spirit of that policy falls by the wayside and it becomes more of a compliance exercise. And when that happens, you don't get the benefit. The agency doesn't get the benefit. The government at large doesn't get it. And so I, I do think it's more of the the pockets of innovation that could be that are being stood up and can be stood up within agencies. What's your sense of how well those pockets of innovation communicate with each other? Are they doing a good job of that? What what makes that communication effective and what are the potential roadblocks that get in the way of those pockets touching each other in such a way that you don't have 15 different organizations doing the same thing 15 different times? Yeah, great question. I think that there's a huge opportunity to create a a government-wide community of practice Mm -hmm. for the pockets of innovation. I don't think that that's taking place right now. Um, So yes, there are successes within agencies, but not not that those pockets of successes aren't necessarily being shared and can't therefore be leveraged by other agencies. Mm-hmm. So I love that question, Francis, and perhaps perhaps a community of practice where um, where every agency that has something right now could come together, start sharing more, and get OMB in the mix as well so that if there are challenges and roadblocks that policy and guidance can help with, um, that OMB can provide that. Because it seems like every agency has something. Yep. And the organizations Agreed. in the Defense Department seem to be doing a pretty decent job of that. Yeah. DIU talks to uh, the Jake, and DIU talks to uh, our Futures Command in the Army, and Spark Tank, and uh, the software factories do a, a decent job, from what I understand, of communicating with each other across the services and all of that. So it's possible. The, the structure... Definitely is not perfect, but the possibility exists. It's not something we should write off, it doesn't sound like. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's even more benefit if if there is that sharing and, and communication across the board. All right. Um, what's the main thing that you think you're going to take away from this conference, Kelly? Um, Besides that it's good to be back in person with humans. It is so good to be back with humans. I... You know, the, I think it's the energy and um, related to the first question you asked, it's all about continuing the connections. So the, the new people that I'm meeting, the old friends that I'm seeing, the really leaving, continuing the conversations. We're having some great ones about what organizations are doing, how they're lifting up and solving challenges that have existed for years and um, anything I can do to help highlight those successes and build upon them, all for it. 
You can read more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The connection between identity management and cyber will be in focus at the Okta Gov Identity Summit 2022. Government and industry leaders will be at the conference at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City June 23rd. You can find a link to learn more and sign up in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Coast Guard has a wave of new ships coming into its fleet in the coming years. Its pace, though, is behind what the Navy will bring online. Brian Campos, Acting Deputy Chief Information Officer of the Coast Guard, in this highlight from his fireside chat with Soraya Correa, the former Chief Procurement Officer at DHS, at the Emerging Technology and Innovation Conference Sunday night, he compared the scale of the military services in DOD to his service. When you think about DOD, um, you're talking about organizations that have hundreds of thousands of people. Coast Guard's a 55,000 person organization. Um, you know, what that really means is for every 12 sailors in the Navy, you've got one person in the Coast Guard. So they're about less than 10% the size of the Navy, but yet they have more missions, they're statutorily, statutorily required missions, and technology's gotta be the thing that helps them get it done. Yes, that's fantastic. What about some of the technologies that they're looking at? So much like any other organization, I mean, they're looking at things like cloud. Um, we're looking at things like, uh, you know, trying to do DevOps, customer experience. Um, you know, we're, we're doing a big initiative um, right now to try and upgrade a lot of the communications that we've got. I would say the biggest thing that the Coast Guard's doing, um, and one thing that really has been interesting, is trying to bring uh, increased communication to the boat. So Coast Guard's been going out with Navy fleets for, uh, you know, the last several years um, into places like Indo-PACOM, around the Horn of Africa. But also going up into the Arctic, um, places where communications is, are, uh, are, are really challenging. Um, so one of the things that we've been trying to do is upgrade the communications equipment, working with industry partners, um, looking at different uh, communications links that we can use, and really trying to upgrade. Uh, one of the most amazing things that we've done in, in about the last year is we've doubled connectivity to the major cutters. So these are the ones that go out, uh, you know, just like a Navy boat would. They'll, they'll be out 180 to 200 days a year. Um, and what we've been able to do is upgrade them so that they've got enough bandwidth that now on the morale side, uh, within some of the mess decks and some of the personnel areas, um, they can actually get uh, you know what we would call dirty internet uh, to be able to send email back to loved ones. Just recently, we just doubled their bandwidth again, um, and now they can actually do video teleconferencing. So using Teams and, and Zoom to actually reach back and talk with their loved ones. Um, so that's a pretty interesting thing, and that actually has been a huge game changer uh, in trying to help us keep our fleet active. That's exciting. That's that's really exciting to hear about. I, I recall when we were working on the cutters talking about that communication system. So that's really good. So I know the Coast Guard has this long, rich history of serving multiple missions, and I, I'm always fascinated about what they do. Can you talk a little bit about all the organizations that they interact with and how they interact? Because it's much more than just the DHS components, right? It's federal, state, local, right? Absolutely. Yeah. The the Coast Guard has one of the largest state, uh, you know groups of, of uh, stakeholders um, of any federal agency. Um, you know, you think about any law enforcement organization across the nation, um, they've got to work with them. They've got to work with tribal areas, state, local organizations. Um, but then they also have to work hand in hand with industry partners. I talked a little bit about the maritime transformation, uh, transportation industry. Every single boat that has a license to go through a waterway has to go through their credentialing system. It also has to go through the inspection system. Um, you've got every uh, international organization that comes to a port has to go through the uh, the maritime transfer, transportation system as well as 
as the vessel documentation systems. Um, every organization that we work with in international law enforcement, so most law enforcement that's done internationally is done through the Coast Guard. Um, you know, again, escorting military uh, ships. Um, but then, uh, you know, a couple of the missions that I didn't talk about um, are interacting with international, uh, you know, just regular international people in things like illegal fishing. Um, you know, illegal fishing is is a uh, not a well-reported thing, but it is actually a large percentage of the work that the Coast Guard does is going out to places where, you know, like the South China Sea, um, you know, where there's not a lot of local enforcement of fishing rules. Um, Coast Guard will be out there trying to understand and, and measure um, and monitor the uh, illegal underreported fishing. Wow, that's, that's impressive. So um, one of the questions that I have is um, I know that we're getting, well, we have a new U.S. Coast Guard commandant and it happens to be a woman. Woo. Yes. Uh, yes. Come on. Come on. This is good. This is all good. Yes. Absolutely. And I'll even say the first military chief that's a woman, that's a pretty impressive thing that's for the Coast Guard. pretty impressive for the Coast Guard. But I understand that she actually has an eye towards technology, and I think you call it the Commandant's Technical Revolution. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So, um, and just to be fair, that, that actually started under the, under the current uh, Commandant, uh, uh, Admiral Schultz. Um, but, you know, it was something that we started just really to kind of explore the technology space. Um, cutter connectivity that I talked about before, that was one of the things that started there. But also the move to the cloud, uh, trying to understand data. What I will say is that, um, you know, as Admiral Fagan uh, takes command, um, one of the things she wants to do is really have technology be part of the organization. Now, we say that technology is part of the organization and a very important part, but um, we also stress that it's people first. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been trying to put out, especially as we think about things like data and AI, um, is that technology is a support for the organization that we've got. So people make decisions, and the technology that we field helps to implement those decisions, helps to automate those decisions. Um, so while, again, technology is a huge part of what we're trying to do, we also need support people in, in place to make sure that the technology is good. Um, so the, you know, as far as expanding the technology, revolution. So we started with five lines of effort. Um, you know, we had cyber, C5I, uh, cutter connectivity, um, data for decisions, and now we're adding two new ones in. So we've got C2, which is command and control, and then navigation. So each of those two new things that we're adding are, are uh, you know, game-changing for the Coast Guard. Um, you know, there's systems that, that we've been leveraging from the DOD that will be retiring in the next few years, so we're trying to build out some new replacements for those systems. But but we're taking a different approach, leveraging what we did in the first half of the technology revolution, bringing in things like data, making data part of what we do for our C2 systems, making sure that as we develop navigational systems that we're actually leveraging the technology that we did through ComSatCom, um, thinking about how we can use AI to actually build out navigation systems that can manage these overly congested ports, that can work with the shippers to understand and give them more information as they're attempting to come to a port. And then one, one thing that I'm really really excited about is leveraging things like data and AI when we're talking about search and rescue. Um, you know, it, it it is one of the things that really blew me away when I got to the Coast Guard was understanding the amount of uh, knowledge and uh, the amount of data that needs to be consumed for something like a search and rescue operation. Um, you know, using something like AI to help that, so it doesn't require 20 people to all be in you know constant com communication. What we can do is we can set up some of those basic parameters, have AI help and support the uh, search and rescue folks, so that we can get to outcomes a lot quicker. Wow, that's that's impressive. 
process. I, I actually recall visiting uh, one of the Coast Guard operational centers where they're doing the search and rescue work, and it's amazing how many people are involved in that process. Absolutely. Both behind the scenes as well as out there on the cutters themselves. Wow, that's impressive. Um, so talk a little bit about the challenges that you confront as the Deputy Chief Information Officer at Coast Guard, because I know that's probably a pretty daunting task given all the missions and all the, the work that you have to do there. It absolutely is. I think um, yeah, we could probably break the, uh, the challenges down into a few different areas, but I'll touch on a couple. Um, you know, one of them is, as I talked about, right, we, we in the Coast Guard have to be able to manage to two different sets of stakeholders. Um, being within the Department of Homeland Security, obviously we've got to make sure that the federal side of the organization, um, you know, our federal responsibilities are handled. Um, you know, think of things like FATARA, um, you know, things like the, the CIO Act, um, managing, uh, you know, audits, those sorts of things. Um, you know, making sure that, that the DHS mission side of it is absolutely at front of mind for everybody within the organization. But then we also have to be able to manage to the DOD side. So each of those DOD organizations, um, you know, we've got to be able to maintain the same set of controls. So we talked about FedRAMP and how FedRAMP, um, you know, we're trying to modernize that, right? You heard Senator Peters talk about that. Um, FedRAMP applies to us just as much as it does to uh, any organization, but then we also have to layer in all of the IL controls, right? So, you know, when you think about FedRAMP moderate um, and IL 4 and 6, um, you know, that's something that we've got to be able to maintain and manage. Um, so, you know, it's almost as if we've got a, a, an additional set of constraints that we've got to manage with IT, but we also have to, you know, be able to deliver on the technology that all of the Coasties need. Um, so from a, from a technology challenge perspective, I would really say that I think the biggest thing that we've got is we've got so many different mission sets. Um, sometimes it's difficult to understand the systems that they need, uh, you know, funding each of the systems, maintaining and managing all the systems. The budget side uh, for the Coast Guard is generally challenging. Um, you know, we've got a, a minuscule budget when you consider, you know, the size of somebody like DOD, but we have a decent side if you think about the, um, you know, within DHS, we have one of the larger budgets. The challenge, though, is that we've got so many systems that we've got to continue to maintain and manage. Um, one of the challenges that I'm going to, you know, try and do over the next couple of years is to really understand where there's chances for synergy. Um, understanding where, as we we start to understand the data, um, you know, where we can leverage data across systems. Um, you know, stovepipe systems are a challenge for any CIO, uh, but I think at Coast Guard, where there's so many different domains, there's not a lot of opportunities for reuse. Um, and then, you know, the other challenge that I would would say is just being able to keep current. Um, you know, the Coast Guard, you mentioned, Coast Guard's, you know, over 220 years old. They have a rich tradition. They have a lot of history. And they've got a can-do attitude. Um, so sometimes, you know, it's, it's difficult to get them to understand that we need to bring in a system. We know you've got great policies. We know you've got great procedures. Everybody in the Coast Guard want, wants to get the mission done no matter what. Um, but sometimes what we've got to do is take a couple of steps. We've got to slow down so that we can build systems that can speed them up. Um, you know, one of the things that I want to try and do with that is really to start thinking about where, um, you know, things like uh, customer experience management. Um, that's one of the things that DHS is focusing on. We've been able to, uh, you know, kind of leverage what, what they're doing 
um, to bring customer experience in. So that's both stakeholders within the Coast Guard, but also our interactions with the citizens. Um, I'm really, really interested in trying to understand how not only can we make things better for the Coast Guard and make it easier for us to manage those systems, but how can we make it better for the citizens? How can we reduce the amount of paperwork or reduce the number of interactions that it takes for a vessel to get their license? Um, you know, how can we leverage data to be able to understand and, and escalate a challenge rather than going out and automatically assume that there are challenges uh, with our inspectors as they go out to, to reach into the uh, you know, ships for inspection purposes. Um, so there's, there's a variety of challenges. I think there's a, you know, one good thing about those challenges is that I think we've got a really, really good set of folks. Um, and, and honestly, you know, the committees in uh, Congress have been good about trying to help us with, uh, with budget side. Obviously, there's always budget challenges. Um, we're coming into a particularly difficult period. Uh, but, but I will say that, you know, our, our, the folks on the Hill have been good to the Coast Guard, especially in recent years with things like the CARES Act and, you know, some of the cybersecurity money that we've gotten. Also, uh, supporting the cutters, replacing a lot of the fleet because they, their fleet really so, needed to be modernized. 100%. And, and you know, it's, it's really interesting. Again, we talk about the Coast Guard being a 220-year-old organization. We're undergoing the largest uh, replenishment of cutters that the Coast Guard has ever done. So, absolutely. I think we've got, um, you know, when you look at the, uh, you know, especially the, the whole mechanical and engineering side of the budget, it's the biggest budget that the Coast Guard's ever had. Um, you know, bringing in things like the National Security Cutter, exactly. the Offshore Patrol Cutter, um, bringing in, uh, you know, a lot of the Arctic Cutters, the, um, you know, the, the Waterways Cutters that we're doing. Absolutely. We've got a, uh, a variety. But then, you know, it's also the technology challenge of trying to bring those in. Um, so, yeah, no, no yeah, shortage of challenges. You can read more about the Coast Guard's IT operation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday afternoon on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop Podcast returns tomorrow afternoon with Ken Bible, the CISO at DHS. Till then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.